This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. First Thessalonians chapter five. We're really gonna. Uh, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna start in verse number sixteen and read down through the end of Paul's letter here. Uh, he kind of gives some just really quick, rapid fire admonitions as he closes out this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, and so we're really gonna focus on verse number twenty-one. But he gives a lot of good uh, advice uh, before and after that as well that we want to include uh, as well. And so uh, we're only take a look at one verse. And if you've been a Hui Kala for any length of time, you know that the number of verses has no bearing on the length of the message, okay? So I don't want you to think like, oh, it's one verse, it'll be really quick. It may or may not be quick. And so uh, just uh, strap in, though, because it's going to be good, I promise you that. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse number 16. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Verse number 18 is a good verse to circle and star and underline your Bible and commit that to memory. And everything give thanks, because that is the will of God. Verse number 19, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Verse 21 is where we're going to be at. Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray... God, your whole spirit and soul and body preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. As we look at the idea of truth, uh, we uh, live in a society today where truth is kind of... uh, a little bit muddy waters. It was never intended that to be that way. Uh, we weren't ever supposed to get to the point where truth had differing viewpoints. Uh, again, there's new words that even come in our vernacular and vocabulary where people say uh, he has an alternate version of the facts, uh, meaning that there can be one more, more than one version of the truth. Uh, we're going to give uh, him the opportunity to speak his truth because that's what's true for him, as if one person has a monopoly or a corner on truth. Truth is what it is. It belongs to no one. No one can own it apart from God himself. Uh, God is the source of all truth. Uh, God's word is always true 100% of the time. And so when Paul challenges the church at Thessalonica here, he tells them to prove those things, uh, prove all things, and hold fast to that which is good. The term prove means to verify whether or not it's genuine. Uh, someone had given me a watch one time that was a very nice watch, like like next level nice watch. And so uh, I was really overwhelmed by the gift. It was really expensive. And so I was thankful for it. I wrote a really nice note. I hardly ever wore it because I don't want people to judge me based on the type of things that I'm wearing. Like it was a gift. I don't have that kind of money. And so anyways, um, the battery died on it which was an indication that this was not an automatic watch. For those of you that know, you don't put batteries in automatic watches, and this had a battery, and so that was problem number one. And so I take it to the jeweler, he pops the back off of it, and he says, hey, you know this is fake, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's like, okay, yeah, that's 15 bucks to put a battery in it. So he put a battery in it. Someone had given me a watch that I thought was genuine. Come to find out it was incredibly... uh, counterfeit. It was, it was a fake. Uh, and it was uh, moderately embarrassing because uh, I had a sneaking suspicion was that it was. But then the jeweler there in front of everybody in the store, <laughs> hey, you know this is fake, right? And it's like, oh yeah, of course I know that. Like, do you think I'd bring a, a you know, a fake watch in here to get the battery changed? If I didn't know, of course not. It's kind of awkward, right? But here's the thing, how do you know unless you know? That's why the Bible says, prove all things. Hey, test these things out to figure out whether or not they're genuine. When it comes to our faith, we got to test this to make sure that this is legit, that this is the real deal. Uh, When I uh, I grew up in church my entire life, I'm thankful for Christian parents who took me to church every single week of the world without fail, three times a week, always in church. 
I turned 18, I joined the Navy right out of high school, and I uh, went to boot camp, and uh, aside from boot camp where you got one hour a week that you could go to chapel, that nobody yelled at you and cursed at you, I took that. Uh, aside from going to chapel, uh, and didn't really go to church uh, when, I, when I joined the military, uh, because nobody made me. And what I found probably a year, year and a half in, I felt like, you know, I need to figure this whole, like, God and faith thing out. And I began to do a lot of self-discovery and self-study, if you will, to find out, hey, what all is out there in the world amongst world religions? And if Christianity is just a small part of this, you know, uh, am I believing in the right thing? Is this uh, the right path? Is there something else out there that's better? And so as I began to study different world religions, I kind of narrowed the scope down to, I believe that there is a God and that he's spoken to us through the Bible. And that's kind of as broad as I had gotten. And for many people, that's a, uh, about as, as, as narrow as they'll ever get. And, but I wanted to know more. And so for me, I began to do a lot of, of discovery of how do we know that the Bible's true? And again, mind you, I'm a 19, 20-year-old kid who doesn't really know anything about anything. This was long before. You could just like, you know, read Wikipedia articles and stuff or, you know, watch a YouTube video. I mean, like I was going to Barnes & Noble and sitting and getting books off the shelf and reading through them and uh, asking a lot of questions of myself. I had a notebook that I was keeping questions in. And so it came down to the point where, okay, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and, and now I need to find what group of people follow the Bible. And that's going to be, again, Christianity, big, huge blanket. Okay, well, if there's 10,000 different types of Christian churches, which one is the right one? And so, again, I tried to narrow the scope further and further until I became to the point where I realized I'm a Bible-believing Christian that attends a Baptist church because it closely aligns with the Word of God. And I own that for myself. I'm not a Christian or a Baptist because my parents told me to be. I did my own homework. I did my own study, and I owned my faith for myself. Every person is going to have to come to that point. Uh, for, our, for our children, for those of us that have kids, they're going to come to a point in their life where they're either going to have to receive the faith or reject the faith on their own. There's nothing that we as parents can do about it. But what we can do in the meantime is train up your children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. So, uh, but again, at some point, they've got to own it for themselves. Parents, don't be so concerned when your kids start asking questions about how do we know this stuff is real. Again, if they ask with an inquisitive spirit, uh, the Bible has the answers that will satisfy them. And so, again, we shouldn't uh, fear questions. And, and just know this, this is just a really good side note. The, the truth never fears questions. A good indication that you're a part of a cult is when people say, hey, you don't really need to know that. Hey, stop asking so many questions. Hey, hey, why are you asking that? You, you don't need to know that. Hey, whenever you get to the next level, you'll, you'll find out the answers to that. Until then, keep your mouth shut. That's how cults get started. The, the, the truth never fears questions. You got questions about the Bible. I got answers, and for what I don't have answers for, I'll say, hey, God knows, and maybe he'll let us know one of these days. But the truth never fears questions. So for us as Bible-believing Christians, we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. Again, I'm thankful if you had parents that brought you up in church and you say, hey, my mom used to always tell me to read the Bible or my dad always encouraged me to pray. Thankful for that. Hey, I grew up in a good church or I was a part of a good church where the pastor said we shouldn't do this or that. Great, I'm thankful for that. But again, at the end of the day, you have to believe what you believe, not because your mama told you or because your pastor one time told you or because your grandma said. You have to believe it because the word of God says so. Have to. We have to know what we believe, why we believe it. That's why in who we call it, we place a massive importance on discipleship. You need to know your faith so that you can live your faith, so that you can pass your faith on to someone else. If you don't know your faith, you can't pass anything on. If you're not living your faith, you don't really know your faith. And so again, we need to know what we believe, why we believe it. And for us, our doctrine, our truth, our behavior must be rooted in the Word of God. For us as Bible-believing Christians, we say the Bible is our sole authority, the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. How do we worship God? The Bible tells us. How do we serve God? The Bible tells us. How do we obey God? The Bible tells us. What should we or shouldn't we do? The Bible tells us. It informs every decision. How do I raise my kids? The Bible tells me. How do I treat my wife? The Bible tells me. How do I perform at work? The Bible tells me, believe it or not. How do I resolve conflict with someone? The Bible tells me. And I follow the Bible in every area of my life. 
Now again, when we want to follow the Bible when it's convenient, but then do our own thing when that's more convenient, we're not really, we can't really call ourselves Christ followers. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like, what parts of the Bible we don't like. Uh, again, that creates an um, unbalanced uh, view of ministry. Again, we love to rail on the sins of other people. Uh, you know, again, we have uh, churches who want to rail against homosexuality and talk about how an abomination, how it's wicked and stuff like that. But the pastor himself has been married three different times. You can't have one without the other. Either we're going to believe the Bible for everything or we're going to believe the Bible for nothing. And so we as Bible-believing Christians have to allow the Word of God to inform everything that we do. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For the Word of God is given to us by inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means breathed out by God. Greek word theonoustos. God's breath gave us the Bible. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, you should commit that to memory because it says this. The Bible tells us doctrine, that's what's right. It tells us reproof, that's what's wrong. It gives us correction, that's how to fix what's wrong. And it gives us instruction in righteousness, that's how to stay right. So it tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to fix what's wrong, and how to stay right. It tells us in every area of our life. Now again, some people want to be like, well, the Bible is kind of gray in certain areas. The Bible is ridiculously clear. And if you don't have a, a chapter and verse for something, there's always biblical principles that we can apply. And so again, if we're going to live by the book, we got to apply it to our lives. I, I met, I'm just going to put them in a broad category, carnal Christians who say things like, well, the Bible doesn't say that you can't smoke weed. Like, show me a chapter and verse in the Bible where Christians can't smoke marijuana. And I'll be the first to tell you, there is no chapter and verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not smoke marijuana. Not there. But you want to talk about being sober-minded? I got verses for that. You want to talk about walking in wisdom? I got verses for that. You want to talk about being distinct from the world? I got verses against that. You want to talk about your testimony before unbelievers? I got tons of verses for that. You want to talk about not adopting the wisdom of the world? I got plenty of verses for that. There's principles in the Bible that say Christians just don't do stuff like that all day long because the Bible speaks to every area of our life. But you need to know the Bible. It's not enough to just know stories about the Bible or say, I believe the Bible or I'm a Christian or things like that. You need to know God's word. I challenge you to become a theologian. I challenge you to become a Bible scholar. Not just I carry the Bible or I read a couple of verses in the morning. Again, I'm thankful if you do that. But you need to know the word of God. Again, discipleship is a 14-week program that we have where we get you in an on-ramp to learning the Word of God, but that's an on-ramp. It's not the whole journey. You've got to continue to dig deep into the Word of God. You need to know what it says because you can't have conviction without clarity. Again, people say, well, I believe the Bible. Which part? All of it. Really? What about this? Oh, I didn't know about that. And here's the, the thing that I'm going to warn you with as well. Know your Bible because there are many unbelievers and atheists who know the Bible way better than you do. Well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I do everything the Bible says. Oh, really? Well, the Bible says if somebody's caught having sex outside of wedlock that they should be stoned and put to death. Do you believe that? Well, where does it say that? It says in the book of Deuteronomy. It says in the book of Leviticus. Do you believe that? Well, well I, I don't know. Let me ask my pastor. Lame answer. Know your stuff. Now, again, you're welcome to ask me because I won't hear, get this. I, I would never make fun of you for asking me a question because I want to teach you how to know your faith. But to, to talk to somebody at work that knows 10 times more about the Bible than you do because you don't have a good answer makes you look like a fool, makes you look like, oh, you believe something, but you don't even know what you believe. What's the appropriate answer there? That was the Levitical law given to the Jews, and we are not under the law. Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, resurrected, and fulfilled the law, checked it off every single box so that we're no longer under the bondage of the law. But God's moral law hasn't changed in the fact that fornication, any sexual activity outside of marriage, is still a sin for everybody. We're not put to death for it because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We're given an opportunity to repent and actually have life instead of death. That's the answer for that one. But you don't know that if you don't know. 
So again, to be able to have conviction that I stand on the word of God requires us to know what we're standing on. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse number 31, and he said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You hear non-Christians quote that last part of, of uh, John chapter 8, verse number 32 there. Oh, know the truth and the truth will set you free. A couple of things with that. Context is always really important. Who's Jesus talking to? He was talking to Christians, specifically Jews that were followers of his now. And he told them, you need to know the truth of the word of God. You need to understand the Bible and you need to live by it because this truth that's being offered to you is going to liberate you in ways that you never knew that you were in bondage. You're going to have a freedom in me that you've never experienced in your entire life, but that comes from knowing the word of God. And so again, we, we can't have this freedom in Christ until we really know what freedom he brings. We can't obey God and follow God and live for God if we don't even know what he expects of us. And so once we recognize what truth is, we need to drop anchor there. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 21 tells us that we should prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Uh, hold fast. Again, I'm going to, to anchor myself to this so that I don't drift. When we talk about truth, we're talking about Bible doctrine. Do doctrine is a agreed upon body of truth that we hold to. Dictionary definition of doctrine, a principle accepted as valid and authoritative, a principle or position or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or a system of belief. So again, this group of truths and beliefs is what makes us who we are. It's been said before that doctrine is the glue that holds the church together. What makes our church different from First Presbyterian Church? The answer to that will always be doctrine. What sets our, our church apart from you know, First Methodist Church? The answer will always be Bible doctrine. What do we believe to be true about the Bible? Now, when we talk about doctrine, uh, one of the Bible dictionary that I have give this definition that I really like, the body of teachings of the Christian faith concerning its central beliefs. Doctrine is grounded in Scripture and aims to maintain the integrity of Christianity by distinguishing it from non-Christian beliefs. A couple of things there. Grounded in Scripture and it's what makes us distinct. Doctrine is of central importance in Christian preaching and teaching in that it equips the people of God for effective and faithful service in the world. Bottom line, everything we believe is deeply rooted in Scripture, and it's what makes us different from everything else that's out there. Christianity should be distinct. We should not be like the rest of the world in what we believe and how we behave and the way that we worship and so again, our doctrine separates us from other, other uh, organizations. If we move doctrine to the side and we no longer hold to a certain type of doctrine, then we become another 501c3 nonprofit that gathers together for the betterment of society and our community. Amen. How many of those we got in town? Hundreds, thousands of them. But what makes us distinct? We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe that he died for the sins of mankind. We believe that he's the only way to heaven. We believe that he rose again the third day of his own power, and he's coming back again to receive those who belong to him. We believe that there's life after death. There's heaven and hell. No one deserves to go to heaven, but everyone deserves to go to hell. God, in his love, mercy, and grace towards us, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again the third day victorious, and anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior can be saved from coming punishment and wrath through Jesus Christ alone. That's what sets us apart from other people. Bible doctrine. So again, what makes who we call a Baptist church separate from, uh, you know, any other church in town, it's going to be Bible doctrine. Now, again, we have to ask the question here, if Jesus only started one church, why are there 10,000 different types of churches? The answer comes down to Bible doctrine. So, again, how do we know what church we should belong to? The question is, what do they follow? Do they follow church tradition? Do they follow a denominational tradition? Do they follow the Bible is the question. 
Even amongst, if you were to do a, uh, some research online, if you would looked up Baptists, Baptists have historically just been a people of the book. Uh, they, they believed God's word and God's word alone as uh, the sole matter of authority for faith and practice. When throughout the uh, times of church history, when the true church was, uh, uh, the word that I'm looking for is uh, punished, uh, the uh, criticized, not criticized, uh, somebody help me. Persecuted, there you go. Uh, persecuted is the word that I'm looking for. When the true church was persecuted, they stood strong in the face of persecution. When they stood strong in the face of opposition. Uh, th- those people throughout all church history, we identify with those people. Uh, we, d- we never came out of the church at Rome. We never protested against the church at Rome. We were never a part of the church at Rome. We've just been a part of the Bible-believing church that Jesus started uh, 2,000 years ago that's been called a, a dozen different names throughout church history. Now, because of that, there's other churches that will, again, piggyback on top of that and split off of that. If you do research on just the term Baptist, there's probably 250 different types of Baptist churches. That's just Baptist. When we were first starting who we call, I was out on the sidewalk, and I was cleaning the windows outside, and there's a guy who walked by, and he looked up at the sign, and he goes, huh, Baptist church. What kind of Baptist church are you guys? And I said, just a plain old Baptist, Baptist church that preaches the Bible. He's like, oh, that's cool. He's like, are you guys Southern Baptists? I said, no, we're not Southern Baptists. We're just regular Baptists. And he's like, oh, so you're regular Baptists. <laughs> no, we're not regular Baptists. And he was just like, oh. He's like, what kind of Baptists? Just Bible preaching Baptist church. Oh, so you're Bible Baptists. No, we're not Bible Baptists. And so just like, you know, just like generally just like Baptists, general Baptists. No, not every single one of those are, are splits and denominations off of Baptists. There's General Baptists, there's Northern Baptists, Southern Baptists, Regular Baptists, Bible Baptists, all that other stuff. Uh, there's a, a group of Baptists called Free Will Baptists. They believe that uh, the church was given three uh, ordinances from Jesus Christ. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the ordinance of foot washing. They believe that, again, the church should still practice foot washing. How many of you would be really uncomfortable if you came into church and said, hey, have a seat over here. Uh, Joe's going to wash your feet before we get started today. How many would be more uncomfortable and say, hey, have a seat right here and uh, wash everybody's feet when they come in? That's just weird to me, okay? Uh, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. Feet are nasty. Uh, I, don't, I don't want people touching my feet. I went to a podiatrist when I was a kid. I had every, every month I had to have a podiatrist poke on my feet. I hated it. I was tormented and traumatized by it. Uh, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have somebody wash my feet. I'm just not going to do it. But again, get this. This is really important. Do we not wash feet because we don't like people touching our feet or it's weird? Or do we not fa- wash feet because the Bible doesn't command us to? That's the distinction of doctrine. Jesus at the Last Supper didn't tell the apostles, hey, when you start the church, you need to maintain this ordinance of foot washing because I've, I've shown you how to wash feet. Jesus did tell you, them, I'm giving you an example of service that you need to be willing to humble yourself and do the work of a slave to advance my kingdom. That's what he was saying. We were never commanded to wash feet because if we were as filthy as they are, you know what we would be doing? We just be washing feet, but we don't because it's a doctrinal issue. So again, doctrine creates boundaries. Doctrine creates division, which is a good thing. But there's other influences that tempt us to drift away from solid Bible doctrine. For example, we're told people don't like Bible preaching. People want to be entertained. Uh, I, before we started Who We Call Out, man, I read dozens and dozens of books on church planning and pastoring and things like that. And uh, the consensus of the majority of books that were written, especially in the last 10 years uh, at that time, were, were, was a formula that went like this. Service should be one hour no longer. People don't want to be at church for a long period of time. One hour no longer. The one hour service should consist of 30 minutes of music followed by a 10 minute thought from the Bible, followed by an additional 20 minutes of music to make people feel good before they leave. And I'm doing the math over there. It's like, that's 50 minutes of music and 10 minutes of a Bible thought. And I thought to myself, this explains Christianity in America. We're entertained for a very brief period of time because we can't give more than an hour because like that, this is like my weekend and like I'm not given a bunch of time to like go and like listen to some guy talk about God. 
They don't want to hear Bible preaching. They want to hear a thought from the Bible. Hey, here's a little nugget. Love your neighbor this week. Just be kind. You should, you should just go home and bake a plate of cookies for your neighbor and just love on them. And maybe you should wash your neighbor's car this week. Wouldn't that blow their mind? All right, we got the worship team coming up. We're going to sing 12 more songs before we head out here today. Amen. That's not Bible preaching. Get this, Bible cre- preaching requires us to lift up the cross of Jesus Christ and say, you've sinned against the holy God and you stand in danger of judgment. It requires that of us. It requires us to look at ourselves not as good people who want to wash our neighbor's car this week, but as wicked, wretched sinners that are in great need of the grace of God. But that's not popular. One book that I read, I, I, no lie, I got like halfway through the chapter and I just threw the book away. We should be very careful of using words like sin because it makes people feel bad about themselves. We should use words like shortcomings or uh, failures or troubles, but not the word sin. Oh, no, 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 no. Sin is a Bible word that points to me to my depravity. We haven't even got to Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, but there's none righteous, there's none that seeketh after God. Their throat's an open sepulcher. The poison of, of snakes is under their tongues. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. So again, we have to preach the Bible. And so again, when we look at what we do, it has to be influenced by the Bible. But other things are going to influence us to drift. One of the things that causes people to drift is, is music in church. For us here at Who We Call It, there's not a single song that we sing here that hasn't been run through the ringer as far as doctrine is concerned. Now, here's, here's the thing. There's some good, fun songs that I used to sing as a kid uh, that, that were, were hymns. They don't meet the doctrinal test. They're not doctrinally accurate, and so we don't sing them. There's good songs that you might have heard on the radio that are not doctrinally accurate. That's why we don't sing them. We sing doctrine because the Bible says we learn of truth through our singing. That's why we're supposed to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because one of the ways that we learn the Word of God is by singing the Word of God. That's why we sang songs about the greatness and majesty of our God this morning. That's why we sang about a God who is mighty to save, who conquered sin, death, and the grave, and desires for all men to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. We sing that. We sing about, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me that I should gain. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Doctrine should inform the music that we sing. It grieves me to hear churches singing songs like, good, good father. Like, I mean, just like, okay, is it true? Sure. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. You're a good, good father. Who you are. Who you are. Who you are. It's just like, okay. Some of you are getting mad at me right now, and I'm just going to say, take a breath, okay? Listen. Just listen to me for a minute, all right? You're getting mad at me. Just listen. There is so much more to the greatness and awesomeness and majesty of God than just the fact that he's a good father. So much more. Let's talk about the blood of Christ. I, I, I walked over this morning. I had to go grab something out of my office, and we were singing over here, and the kids next door uh, were singing in Super Church. And they were singing, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. That's what our kids were singing. Now, again, I'm thankful for Jesus loves me, this I know. They should learn that too. But I want meat. I don't want milk. I want doctrine. I don't want cutesy words that get repeated. I want to know truth. I want to sing truth. I want to love truth. I want to be anchored to truth. And there's so many things that will tempt us to drift. We live in a society today that questions the existence of truth. Can anyone really know what is true and what's not? Well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. And, uh, you know, that's what you're standing on. I don't stand on that. But again, those are temptations to drift that we cannot give into. Doctrinal truth is unchanging. Upon the completion of Scripture in 70 A.D., God's Word has never changed and never will. The Word of God is forever settled in heaven, the Bible says. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. We can't morph it. So get this. The doctrinal truth that was found in 70 A.D. is still valid to you and I in 2023. Still valid, still binding. It doesn't change. 
for example, we, we take things like, how do we worship God? We worship God through gathering together corporately and singing praise and worship to God. We gather together for the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. We gather together for fellowship and accountability to encourage one another. We gather together to pray. Where do we get all this stuff from? Is that the, the, the kind of the thing we've always done as our church or the type of church that I grew up in or you grew up in? Then we find that in the book of Acts. That's what the church did. They gathered together. And they didn't just gather together on the first day of the week, Sunday. They gathered together every single day. And so you're part of a church who has something, no lie, almost every single day that you can be a part of to grow in your faith. Why? Because we need to fill the calendar? No, because that's what the church has always done. And we just want to be doctrinally biblically accurate because it doesn't change you take things like uh like pastors pastor and pastoral qualifications are given in first timothy chapter three titus chapter one those qualifications are unchanging if a man was fit to be a pastor in uh, 200 a.d he should be fit to be a pastor in 20, 2023 a.d because those qualifications never change so again we can say well, we live in a different society today and we do but God's word, God's truth is unchanging. Now, the immutability of God allows us to have an unwavering source of hope in him. Immutability means unchanging because the fact that God never changes, God's word never changes, should greatly encourage your heart this morning. Because some of you are facing some difficult things in the weeks and months ahead. But you gotta get this. The same God departed the Red Sea and let a million Jews out of Egypt in slavery is the same God that's in charge of what you got, whatever you got coming in the next couple of weeks. The Bible says the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead resides in every single person that calls themselves a Christian. That power has never changed. It's never lost its power. It's never faded, it's never waned, it's still as good today as it was 2,000 years ago. That should bring you a source of hope that God doesn't change. God's promises never change. God never takes back his promises. We'll see this tonight, uh, in the next three weeks where we're taking a look at salvation on Sunday nights at five o'clock. Uh, we're taking a look at the doctrine of eternal security. How once you're saved, you're always saved. God doesn't make you a promise of eternal life and then takes it back because you didn't behave right. God doesn't give you the promise of incorruption and take it back and corrupt you. God, God doesn't create you into a new creature and a new creation and then turn his back on you and turn you back into the old you. It doesn't work that way because God keeps his promises. That should be greatly encouraging to you. Greatly encouraging. But here's the thing. For many people, God's word isn't enough. We need something else. We need an experience. We need a way to hook people into what's going on in the society today. We need another hook in the water to try to hook on to people who are uh, given into sin and idolatry and things like that. God's word isn't enough anymore. We gotta take it to another level. And that's why progressive Christianity should always be automatically suspect. If God is unchanging, God's word is unchanging, God's church should be unchanging, we should be really, really on guard against progressive Christianity because we don't need progress. Not because the church is perfect and we got it all together and we're fine, we don't need any help, but we don't need to move from point A to point B because we're supposed to be what Jesus called us to be. So progressive Christianity, anytime you hear that term, we're a very progressive church. Ah, big red flag right there. Look out for that, because we don't need to progress. If anything, we need to regress. So, again, this is where we, we need to be really, really careful. Just because something new doesn't mean it's bad. But the question is, we have to ask this, is this biblical? For example, um, there are people who, no lie, have, have talked trash on your church, our church, because our church doesn't have pews. And churches have pews. And pastors preach with ties. And you should have a red brick building with white pillars out front. Uh, you shouldn't have a, a pulpit like this. You should have a wider pulpit. It should be made out of wood. Uh, the pastor should wear a tie. And we look at things like that and go, okay, is that biblically accurate? No, it's not. So can the church change some? For sure. When we're sitting in folding chairs this morning, I'm not wearing a tie. Can we change in that aspect? For sure. Is it doctrinally or biblically wrong? The answer to that would be no. But when we begin to monkey with the gospel, when we get to playing around with truth, that's when we 
run into to major problems. You see, when it comes to having doctrine, there's certain non-negotiables that make you a Christian or not. Remember, distinctive Christian values. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. You, you can't get around that. If you deny that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, you're not a Christian. If you deny the Trinity, you're not a Christian. If you deny that Jesus Christ was fully God and God in the flesh, you're not a Christian. These are non-negotiable Bible doctrines that you just, you can't cross that line. Progressive Christianity seeks to upend all of those and begin to put questions where there's no questions and begin to question the Word of God. No lie, I saw something uh, that... um, uh, don't quote me on this, but I, I think it was the United Church of Christ uh, put out, which is a massively progressive, incredibly far left political. And again, I'm, I'm not even talking politics, but they make everything political. Uh, they had a, a thing on their website. It says, the Bible is like a GPS. It gives you direction and it keeps you on track, but is occasionally wrong. And I was just like, did that really just say what I thought it said? It did. And basically, again, at the end of the day, was the idea of this. You can't fully trust the Bible, but you can always trust you. I was just like, wait, what? That, okay, that is what the Bible would call heresy. <laughs> the Bible is not the infallible, incorruptible word of God. That's heresy. <clears throat> There's a massive split going on right now in the Methodist uh, denomination. We're not Methodist, so it doesn't really affect us at all. Uh, we're not Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, Regular Baptist, uh, General Baptist, anything. we're just like... Baptists. And so none of, if you see stuff on TV about the Southern Baptist Convention, it's a wreck right now. That's got nothing to do with us, and we don't want any part of that at all. But the Methodist Church right now is going through a, a major split uh, into what would be the more conservative side, that they say, and the more liberal side. And the more liberal side wants to, to ordain uh, gay clergy and transgender clergy to keep up with the times and things like that, where the conservative part does not. Now, the problem with all this goes in the fact that the Methodists were started in the 1800s by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley was the, the primary uh, one in that, and wrote some phenomenal, doctrinally solid hymns. Towards the end of their ministry, they began to preach a doctrine that was a false doctrine called the second blessing, that God would give certain individuals the ability to reach a level of sanctification, that means sinlessness, where they would be no longer sinners and they would live a sinless life from there on. Now, the question is, how do I get that second blessing for my kids? Like, I, I need that. You know, how do I get it for me? How do I get it for my wife? You know, if we can ever reach that point. And many people it spawned what was referred to as the holiness movement, where people felt like they'd received a special blessing from God, were no longer, no longer um, sinful any longer. It was heresy from the holiness movement. Again, you just trace out the lineage of it, spawned the Pentecostal movement that we have today. And that's a whole story for a totally different day. But this Methodist church, again, started by John and Charles Wesley, who, again, did a lot of good for the kingdom, uh, then began to, to get mixed, mixed up with some false doctrine. Then after they died, about the 60s, late 60s, 1968, I believe, uh, the Methodist church agreed to begin ordaining female clergy. And now, mind you, First Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, requires pastors and clergy to be a man. No two ways around that. It's not sexist versus feminist. It's not a new age thing. It's just what the Bible says, okay? Simple as that. So they began to ordain female clergy in opposition to the Bible. They broke with doctrine, okay? 1968. Because again, that was a time of of hippies in Vietnam and LSD and free love and feminism and burning bras and the whole other thing. So they're going to be progressive and begin to ordain female clergy now. Here's the problem with that. And again, it took about 50 or so years to come to roost But once you begin to pull down the boundaries of doctrine, there's no longer anything keeping you in check. Because if the pastoral qualifications aren't aren't limited by what 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 say, then we have no limitations. So I'm going to ordain my puppy dog as the new pastor of our church because there's no biblical qualifications anymore. 50 years later, that comes to roost in the fact that there's a group who now want to ordain gay clergy in opposition to the Word of God. And this, quote, conservative group says, oh, we can't do that. Why not? We're not following the Bible anyways. What keeps us from not following the Bible even more? And so, again, it's caused a rift and a split in that. And so, again, why are we not Methodists? Because of Bible doctrine. So there's a group of, like, ultra-progressive group that's called the Liberation Methodist Connection. 
Uh, and this is a, a group of churches that split off of the denom- denomination that is, seeks to be more progressive. Now, there's a clip from their website that if you look at it on the surface, it appears to be like, okay, I don't agree on that, but the rest of it's pretty good. They want to make a place in the church for all these people, regardless of your gender expression and sexual identity, regardless of whether you're religious or non-religious, regardless of your heritage, nationality, citizenship, immigration status, ra- race, ethnicity, size, physical and or mental age, incarceration status, living with HIV and any other chronic medical illnesses, socioeconomic housing statuses, monogamous or non-monogamous relationship. They want to allow a place in the church for people regardless of their hair color, styles, tattoos, piercings, and body arts. It's like, okay, I'm reading this list. It's like, I don't have a problem with the majority of this either. Mental and physical ability or disability, use of drugs, education level. What's the big deal? Well, there's a couple of things on there, the monogamous, non-monogamous, and the uh, gay and and transgender stuff up there that is what the Bible calls a sin. That's a problem. But then they they, uh, lump it all together in one big basket there. And if you don't agree with this, you're against people who are, you know, obese from being able to worship. You're against people who have tattoos. You're against people who, uh, you know, have been incarcerated before. You're against people who have, uh, you know, chronic illness. And it's just like, no, I'm not. There's just a couple things that I don't agree with there. So again, we look at this and I say, okay, I agree with with probably 95% of this is not a problem, but here's how this fleshes out. It's not just this. It goes a little bit deeper when we talk about, get this, doctrine Um, from their vision and mission statement. This comes directly from their website. We're a people of committed faith to living into and out of the wisdom and compassion of the historical Jesus. Okay. A brown man of undetermined sexual orientation who arose from a people bowed down under the empire. Oh, wait a minute. I think I see where this is going. Let me just stop you right here. To say that Jesus was a person of undetermined sexual orientation is a blasphemous statement against the Son of God. Blasphemy. I don't have to read any further. You leave the question open that Jesus might have been gay. It's a blasphemous statement, period. But the blasphemy goes on. Um, His prophetic witness calls us to a risky engagement with powers and principalities and compels us to overturn tables of systemic oppression. In our quest for justice, we consciously avoid theological litmus tests and external creeds. They just said we don't like Bible doctrine. We're a people led by God's spirit in a way that welcomes a dynamic evolution of our beliefs, our practices, and our system. Notice the word evolution. It's constantly changing. We don't really know what we believe. We're just kind of figuring it out as we go, and it's this uh, collective, dynamic, eclective evolution of our belief system here. Our vision's founded on the prophetic leadership and active participation of black, indigenous, people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, plus uh, people, and people with disabilities. These collectives live at the intersection of direct social action and theological reflection. Okay, I can officially say now that I am 100% against everything that you believe now. 100%. But again, hold up for a second. If you're against this, you're going to be labeled as a bigot, a racist, a homophobe, a transphobe, and everything else under the book because, uh, you know, you hate people that are different than you. No, no, no. I just can't say that Jesus says all this nonsense is okay. But again, notice that this is not a true gospel. It's a false gospel. Jesus came, and he was bowed under the oppression of the empire. And it's our job to rise up against systemic oppression, Friend, the number one thing in life that is holding you down is your slavery and bondage to sin. That's your problem. That's the slavery that you live under. Not the man is keeping you down. Not political, you know, reform. Not socioeconomic reform. None of that. The problem is our sin nature. And this stuff is so far from truth. And the fact that they could call themselves Christians or call themselves a church is, a, is heresy. John says in 2 John, verse number 10, they're coming unto you and bring not this doctrine, good Bible belief. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't say God bless you to the guy. Don't sit down and have a meal with him. Don't invite him into your house. These people are heretics. And so with this, I I can't get on board with this. I I wouldn't attend a pastor's prayer breakfast with one of their pastors. I couldn't in good faith, not because I'm mean or I'm unkind, but because we believe differently when it comes to Bible doctrine. A possibly gay Jesus that came to set you free from poverty is not the same Jesus that saved my soul. They're not even the same guy. 
So again, we have to allow ourselves to be anchored in truth, and we have to carefully examine everything that claims to be truth. i got to dig deep and find out, hey, just because this calls itself Christian doesn't necessarily mean that it's Christian. I don't know if any of you are, are coffee snobs like me, but like... Um, I'm like medium level coffee snob. Like I like good coffee. I don't drink junk coffee. Uh, I like my coffee the way that I want it. I have a, a friend who's like next level. Like, oh, these beans are a little over roasted because it was a lot of uh, you know deforestation was taking place in the Amazon region during this time. There was a lot of moisture in the air in the season that they harvested these beans. I'm not like that, right? but I like a good cup of coffee. Did you know that there's this massive fight going on of what makes Hawaiian coffee Hawaiian coffee? And basically the rules right now are 10% uh, of your, your mix has to be from locally sourced to call it Hawaiian. Well, some people aren't following those rules, and how do you prove that it's 10%? How do you prove that you're following the rules and stuff like that? And so there's this big, huge thing on, like, what is Hawaiian coffee? And so you go over to Long's, their coffee section over there. You can take a coffee off the shelf and look on the back, and it should show you what percentage of that is coffee, is Hawaiian coffee. And, and of that, if you get like pure 100% Kona, you're going to pay like 40 bucks a bag for it because it's incredibly more expensive. Now, again, just for the coffee nerds out there, it has nothing to do with today's message. But uh, Kona coffee is not necessarily better than Brazilian coffee or, you know, Central American coffee. But it has a higher cost associated because we have to pay our laborers to pick that at a livable wage with health insurance and workman's comp and all those other expenses that go into that. It makes the cost of the coffee more. But the perception is it's a $40 bag of coffee. It must be better. Not necessarily always the case. So anyways, uh, what I'm saying is we got to start looking at the label on stuff that calls itself Christian. Just because it says it's Christian or it was a book I got at the Christian bookstore doesn't make it Christian. I have a good friend who I would consider has fairly good discernment uh, that I was talking to several weeks ago. And he said something, something. Um, yeah, he's whatever the, the measure was on the Enneagram scale. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. did you say Enneagram? He was like, yeah. I was like, dude, that's 100% satanic and pagan. Like that has roots in witchcraft. He's like, no, no, there's this Christian blogger that was writing about it. No, you can't take a witchcraft practice and slap the name Christian on it and just call it good. It doesn't work that way. And he was just like, well, I've never heard that. Do some research. He called me back like 10 minutes. He's like, dude, I had no idea. So like, yes. We got to dig a little bit deeper than somebody just saying that it's Christian. We need to be discerning in what type of music that we listen to that calls itself Christian music. Uh, again, on the Christian music station, major pet peeve of mine, uh, they, they sing a song called Down to the Water. I went down to the water, down to the water, down to the water to pray. Washed in the water, washed in the water, and came up in amazing grace. I went down, down, down to the river. Hey, if you're not paying attention, super catchy song, like, oh yeah, down to the river to pray. No, 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 that's talking about baptismal regeneration. I went down under the water, and I came out, and I was in amazing grace at that point, that the water had something to do with it. There's another song, it must have been something in the water. I went down to the water and I got baptized and I came up and my life was different. It must be something in the water. How about it must have been something in the blood of Jesus Christ? Like, come on. But again, this stuff just lumped into Christian because it has faith-based ideas. We need to reject undoctrinally sound Christian music because it's not Christian. And so again, I'm just talking about discernment. We have to examine what's true. Your favorite preacher might be a great guy, and he might have a real love for the Lord. Is he preaching doctrinal truth? I hope he is. For me, I, I was listening to a, a preacher man probably 10, 15 years ago. I loved listening to him. His delivery style was great. He had the funniest jokes. And uh, again, uplifting, encouraging messages. But at the end of it, I realized he never really preached the Bible. Like, he would vaguely reference Scripture, and he'd use God in, in always positive, you know, glowing terms. But there's never any meat there. And I began to do a, dig a little bit deeper and found out, like, hey, I listened to 10 messages, and I got zero Bible from it whatsoever. And I realized, this isn't a good guy to listen to. It made me feel good. I was encouraged by it, but it wasn't Bible preaching. We have to look and see what is this. The question, and the only question that we have to ask is, does this stand up to Scripture? What does the Bible have to say? You take the, the church at Berea. The Bible says Acts 17, 11, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica that they received the word with readiness in mind, but then they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Hey, that was a great word that you brought. Can you show me that in the Bible over here? Hey, that was a really encouraging message today. Point me back to the Bible for that. I want to go home and study that to see if what you said was true. 
Man, the Bible commends that. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Man, dig in deep and find out, is this really of God or not? Well, man, they got a church that's busting at the seams. They got like six campuses all over the place. You know, they must be doing something right. Is that the litmus test for doctrinal fidelity, how big they are? If so, we can say that the, you know, Mormon church is crushing everybody, you know? But again, not doctrinally solid. Why are we not Mormons? Bible doctrine. So when we look at this, we have to say, does this line up with the Bible? First John chapter 4, verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hey, look, again, you go to a church where they say, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be rich. You're never going to get sick. You just need to have faith. Whatever you desire in the world, you just need to claim it. Say it with faith, and God is obligated to give it to you. You need to try that spirit, the Bible says, and see if that's from God. Does God really want everybody to be wealthy? Why was Jesus homeless? Does God really want everybody to be healthy? Why did Paul have a thorn in the flesh and struggle with physical affliction? Does God really require that we proclaim what we want? He's going to automatically give it to us? Then why did Paul have to ask three times that God would take away his thorn in the flesh and God still didn't do it? These things just don't even add up with Scripture. The God you're talking about, who is a, a, a divine ATM that we just punch in the right numbers and the blessings flow, is not the God of the Bible. I'm testing that, I'm trying that, and that is proving as a counterfeit that I have to reject. Another term to always be on the lookout for. Is this a new word from the Lord? That is a red flag as red can possibly get. I'm just going to drop another one in here for you too that's free of charge today. Anytime you hear the term of someone calling themselves an apostle, automatic red flag, guaranteed. There was, in the Bible, we're given the office of the pastor, the office of a deacon. There was never apostolic succession after the book of Acts, ever. It never took place. Anybody who calls himself an apostle is a self-appointed apostle, which makes them a false apostle, guaranteed. Oh, Apostle Brad was at our church, and he spoke a word of prophecy over me. Man, I wouldn't give you two bucks for his word of prophecy. <laughs> and, and again, I don't need a word of prophecy because I have the word of God. I don't need you to speak over me what's going to happen this week in my life and rebuke the devourer and put up a hedge of protection. I don't need any of that. I just need to dive into the word of God because I have truth. So anytime somebody says, I have a new word, we don't need a new word from God. We have 66 books of what he's already spoken. And let me just say this. If you ever see this pastor get up here and say, I'm not going to preach the word of God today. I had a revelation from God last night in a dream I want to share with you. I hope there's enough people with enough uh, integrity to grab me by the throat, take me out to the sidewalk, beat the snot out of me, and tell me to never come back. <laughs> or just get up and leave. You got two options there. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't condone violence, you can just leave. But I give you permission. No lie, there's this mega church in... Uh, uh, Florida, the pastor has since uh, left under scandal. Big shock. Uh, pastor of the megachurch on Easter Sunday says to his whole congregation, I had a great message from the Bible I was going to preach to you, but uh, Jesus came and spoke to me this past week, and I just want to tell you about that instead. Uh, and, he, and he sat down at a table on the platform with his wife and began to talk with his wife about Jesus coming to him. And she's asking him questions like, well, what did he look like? And what was his voice like? And what did he say to you? And all this other stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, and you got 2,500 people there that are just like, yeah. And it's just like, all of you have been deceived. Every last one of you. Because we don't need a new word. We have the completed word of God that we hang our hat on that is sufficient. And again, if you say, we need a new word from God. You're saying the word of God is not sufficient, which is blasphemy. So again, beware of people with new words. And again, Ecclesiastes 1.9 says that there's nothing new under the sun. Every new word that comes from God is just repackaged heresy. There's a, a heretic by the name of Rob Bell, pastored a church in uh, Michigan for a while. And... Uh, so he came out with this book. He was a very popular author and speaker and pastor and stuff like that. He came out with a book called Love Wins. And the book itself basically says that everyone eventually will be saved, 
that you don't have to worry about whether people accept Christ, whether people are Christian or not, that God's love always wins and will bring everybody to heaven eventually one day. And he got excommunicated basically from Orthodox Christianity where everybody said, this guy's a total heretic. And so, excommunicated from Orthodox Christianity where everybody agrees this guy's not a Bible-believing Christian, he was then, no lie, you can look this up online, embraced by Oprah Winfrey. And she began to tout him as this guy who has a, you know, a, a new vision from God and a new message from God. That's repackaged heresy called universalism. And it's been around for a thousand plus years. Rob Bell didn't come up with a new idea of a fresh word from God. He repackaged old heresy. Ecclesiastes 1 says there's nothing new under the sun. Nobody has a new word from God. Nobody has a, a new way of seeing things or a new way to salvation or a new way to Jesus. It's all the same. That's why we got to stay with the Word of God. It's everything to us. To examine truth, we have to separate tradition from biblical truth. Again, is somebody a heretic because they don't wear a tie on Sunday or because they don't have pews in their, their auditorium or because, you know, their, their walls are painted dark or, and things like that? We had a, we were first starting who we call it. There's a lady who came by. We were trying to, to clean this place up. It used to be a fantastic Sam's before it was who we call a Baptist church. And so... We were doing a lot of construction and stuff like that. And some lady comes in one day and she was like, hey, I got a question for the pastor. Where is he at? And I was just like, me. And she was like, all right. She was like, I got one question on one question on you. Better think really hard before you answer it. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Okay. Welcome to the neighborhood, by the way. Um, okay. And she was like, why is the church painted black? I'm sorry? She was like, this building used to be a beautiful mint green. And now it's like this almost charcoal black. Why is that? What kind of darkness are you bringing into the neighborhood? And I said, no lie, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I said, gray shows very little dust and dirt. Uh, and I said, there's tons of construction going around here. I'm just trying to keep the building like looking not dirty. And she was like, well, is it something to do with your bringing darkness in and spiritual darkness? Because churches should be white, you know. I didn't know that. Um, again, could you point that to me in scripture where churches should be white? So Again, we have to separate what is tradition and what is biblical truth, okay? Now, again, I've been to churches before where I'm not a huge fan of their music. It might be doctrinally accurate music. I'm not a, a fan of the style or the way in which it's, it's performed. And, the, again, the performance aspect as opposed to corporate worship together. And so, again, those are things where I'm not going to call somebody heretic over. It's just not my preference. But I need to understand where, where doctrine and preference, there's a division there. I'm not going to go to a church that has the type of music that I like that preaches heresy because I like the music. People do that, but we can't afford to do that. We're Bible-believing Christians. Uh, there's a, a church, again, talking about crossing the line into heresy. There's a, um, a famous uh, mega church in South Carolina. The pastor also fell in spectacular fa fashion. That on Easter Sunday, they played Highway to Hell by ACDC because it would bring in the unbelievers in their neighborhood and they could hear how they were once on the highway to hell, but now they can find Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, that's not helping anybody find Jesus because the Bible says he who's the friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so again, we have to look at stuff like that and say, okay, maybe that's not tradition, maybe that's a biblical issue, but we need to know where that line is. Again, you have uh, the Presbyterians, you have uh, Lutherans, you have um, Episcopalians who baptize babies. Why? We don't find that in Scripture anywhere. Well, if you trace it back far enough, all these are Protestant churches that came out of Catholicism. Catholicism historically has baptized babies to wash away original sin. And so these uh, churches that come along that split from the Catholic Church continue the process. Again, pedo-baptism is the word for you there. Uh, baptizing babies is a way to uh, either wash away their sin or to open a covenant with God. Whatever you call it, whatever reason you do it, it's unbiblical and it's rooted in tradition, not scripture. And so again, we need to know where that line is so that we can cleave to truth. So again, really quick thoughts and we're done here today. First of all, denying biblical doctrine and ascribing to unbiblical doctrine makes you a heretic. If you say that Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, you're a heretic. If you say that there's another way to heaven other than Jesus Christ, you're a heretic. If you say that the Bible can't be trusted, you're a heretic. You have denied basic orthodox biblical truth that the church has held true since the time of Jesus Christ. And so again, where does that line at? It's rooted in what does the Bible say? So again, I have the ability to foretell the future, and I get to tell uh, people, you know, what's going to happen to you six months from now. 
that's extra biblical revelation and that makes one a heretic. And again, for all the people who want to speak words of prophecy, again, this is just a little bit of an aside. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that a prophet, if he gives a word of prophecy, has to be 100% accurate. In the event that the prophet gives an inaccurate prophecy, the punishment for it is, anybody want to guess? Death. You get one shot. You get it wrong one time, you're put to death. That was never lifted in the New Testament. So anybody who wants to call themselves a prophet and foretell the future, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position. You say, do people really do stuff like that? I don't encourage you to go down this rabbit hole, but if you have no better use of your time, you could. There are Christians, and I use that in air quotes, who prophesied that Donald Trump would win the 2020 election. And when he didn't, they began to say, oh, he's in the background trying to overthrow the election results. And oh, he's actually the real president, but Joe Biden is a puppet president. And it's like all this other stuff where it's just like, why can't you say I'm a liar and a false prophet? It makes things just a lot easier on everybody, right? But again, these people, for some reason, get people to continue to ascribe like, oh, they were wrong in that one prophecy, but they've gotten so many other prophecies right. We don't need words of prophecy. We have the word of God. Doctrine is black and white. God's a God of distinction. God wants you to know where the line is all the time. Before the Jews had the Levitical law, God gave them 10 commandments to live by. Jesus, in the Gospels, boiled all the 10 commandments down to two. Love God with every five years of your being and love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. Of this hangs all the law and the prophets. God wants us to know what his word says and to live by it. God is a God of distinction. Doctrine by nature is divisive, by nature. I can't hold hands with another guy and pray to a God who says God's name is Allah and he had no son. We're not praying to the same God. We're not brothers in Christ. We're not spiritual brothers. You don't believe, you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doctrine tells us where that line is. If you believe that there's another way to heaven, doctrine divides us. I went to uh, breakfast one time with a guy um, who pastored a non-denominational church here in Hawaii. And we were talking. I said, hey, man, what does non-denominational mean to you? I said, for, for me, we have a statement of faith. Everybody agrees to it. They believe it. That's why they, they call who we call their home because we, we just believe the Bible. Uh, and he says, well, you know, we give people the latitude to believe whatever they want to believe. And I said, okay, so well, what about, like, for example, speaking in tongues? And he was like, well, some of our folks do, some of them don't, but we give people the ability to choose what they want to do. I said, what about you? And he says, well, I personally speak in tongues, but there's people in our church that don't. I said, okay. I said, I've never spoken in tongues. I said, does that mean that I don't have the Holy Spirit? And he said, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I said, are, I was caught off guard by what you just said. I said, did you know that the book of Romans says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's because you're not saved? And he goes, yeah. So you don't think that I'm saved? He goes, well, no, no, I want to clarify that. You don't think that I'm saved? And he goes, I don't. <laughs> what? My faith and repentance is not enough to save me. I have to show supernatural sign gifts to prove that I'm saved. Yeah. So the people in your church that don't speak in tongues, do you think that they're not saved? Yeah, most of them aren't saved. Wow. Okay, we're not on the same page here. We don't believe the same thing. We might be reading from the same book, but come away with a totally different interpretation on who has genuine salvation and who doesn't. And so the Bible's really black and white, and it causes division, which is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, because here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, people keep saying, peace, peace. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide a husband, uh, a father from his son, and a mother from her daughter, because I am the dividing line. And so it's, it's not necessarily even a bad thing. We have to be well-versed in biblical truth and skilled at recognizing error. Some of you at some point will move to a different city and have to find a new church. You need to look for truth. Not a cool website or a killer Instagram or an incredible worship team. You need to look for truth. There's a couple who's moving to a new town. They asked me to look through all the Baptist churches in town. There's like 10 of them. And so they send me the list of the churches, and I, I start going through them. Number one, I click on it. Very first thing, uh, Mother Mary brings a word for Veterans Day. Click, done, you know. Tell, tell me nothing more. Uh, I want nothing else. Next, 
the, the goal of, you know, First Baptist Church is to bring about recon- racial reconciliation through uh, the use of critical race theory and the Black Lives Matter movement. That's the mission of your church? Like, if you read the Bible, click, you know. You call yourself Baptist and that's what you come up with? You've got to be kidding me. And so, but here's the thing. The person who sent me this list put it on the list of things that I should check out. Like, you should know better than this. Like, you, any Christian who knows the Bible can look at this and say, this is garbage. This is rubbish. This is not the gospel. This is not truth. This is not the mission of the church. You need to know the Bible so that you can know what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, and what is error. We have to stand for truth. We live in a day where it will be unpopular to stand for truth, where we will be called names for, for that, where we might not get advanced in our job, or people will look down upon us because of truth. Hey, whatever happens, I'm standing on truth. Jude, uh, the book of Jude challenges us to stand for the truth, earnestly contend for the faith that was given, and i got to be willing to do that. And we have to keep ourselves anchored to truth. <laughs> Several years ago, I taking my family to the beach, and we were, um, had, we're all planning on getting in the water, and so we put all of our stuff on the beach, and we covered it up with a towel. If you've ever done that before, the towel provides a cloak of invisibility so that nobody can see the valuables <laughs> that are held underneath the towel, right? Like, nobody even knows that they're there. Like, <laughs> I know that underneath there is all of your keys and your wallet and your cell phone. Like, hello. Like, but we covered it up with a, a towel so we feel better about it. And so we get in the water, and we're, we're talking and playing and stuff like that, and I look up, and all of our stuff is gone. And I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. So I get out of the water, and I go up there. I'm trying not to panic because I don't want to alert my wife and have her all been out of shape. And I'm looking, and, like, I don't recognize any of this stuff around us. Like, my stuff's gone. Uh, I'm not seeing, like, any of the other bags or around us that are there. And I was just like, oh, this is not good. This is not good. And then I look up, and I'm looking up and down the beach to see if, like, the person's around, and I see my stuff anywhere. And I look down, and, like, 50 yards down the beach is the gate that we came out of the hotel when we got in the water. And I was just like, I'm not even in the same place. And so I walk 50 yards up the beach and all of our stuff is still there. And I didn't lose anything at all because of the cloak of invisibility. <laughs> but here's the thing. We were in the water and weren't even paying attention to it and we like drifted by like 50 yards and didn't even know it. And we look up and we don't even know where we are. This is what happens when we're not anchored to truth. Well, you know... I know what the Bible says, but that was written 2,000 years ago. It's not really valid today. I know what the Bible says, but that just doesn't feel right to me. I know what the Bible says, but I got a good friend who disobeyed the Bible, and it worked out for them. Then we begin to drift, and you wake up one day, and you're like, how did I wind up here? Because you stopped being anchored to truth. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and there's never been a time in life where you've been saved or born again, Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you're putting your faith in a church or your baptism or sacraments or anything else to save you, you've put your faith in the wrong place. And I want to help you to put your faith in Jesus today. If you're putting your faith in your own good works or what you've done well or how smart you are, please put your faith in Jesus alone to save you today. For those of us that are Christians, let's never outgrow the Word of God where we need some new exciting experience. Let's never outgrow the Word of God where we're looking for a fresh revelation from the Bible. Let's drop our anchor in the Word of God, which is truth. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.